Let me ask you now, please, as we come to the scripture, to pray with me. Father in heaven, here we are. And we pray that you would grant grace to us, that we may listen, that we may hear. As our Lord Jesus said, blessed is the one who has ears to hear. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear and believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Kings in chapter 17. 1 Kings in chapter 17. I'm going to read through this whole chapter, and I think we'll even be able to cover it. 1 Kings chapter 17, please. <clears throat> Hear the word of God. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither uh, be dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook, and after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall uh, not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day, the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. And the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to, have, you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took from her arms, and he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid, on, uh, laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah 
And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now, what are we to make of this? Historical narrative, that is, these narratives in the scriptures, are often the most difficult for us to interpret and apply. The reason is that it is an account of something that took place. And what we have to ask is, well, what does this really mean then and to us? How do we apply this, this kind of thing? Now, what we'd like to do is, is identify with Elijah. And what we'd like to do is identify with Elijah in such a way that we would say, we'll always be fed. That no matter what happens in our lives, we'll never starve, that God will find some way to feed us. And certainly he makes promises to care for us, just as I mentioned during our offering time. Jesus said that we're to pray for our daily bread. But the truth of the matter is, we know, there have been some Christians who've starved to death by way of persecution. What we'd like to do is identify with Elijah and say, well, if somebody dies, we could lay on that person. And we could ask God to raise that person from the dead, and he would. It's true that God has power over life and death proven here. But when have you seen that happen? And we'd like to identify with Elijah rather than identify with the prophets that were killed by Jezebel. And we'd like to identify with Elijah even rather than the prophets that were hidden in the cave by Obadiah and, and fed bread and water. We, we, we want to identify with him. We want to identify even with this, this widow because we could think, well, if I only obey, then God will feed me and take care of me and raise my children as well if they're sick and if they die. And so the question is, how do, how do we really understand this? When we walk away after this to this account, what will help us? Well, a few things. First is, obviously, as we know, we want to understand the historical context here as much as possible. We want to understand the historical context as much as possible. Secondly, we want to think through so that we know what's the purpose for this particular passage in the Bible. Why is this here? We know that all the history recorded in the Scripture is selective history, Right? There's all kinds of things that happened in ancient Israel and all kinds of things that happened during the life of Jesus and all kinds of things that happened in the early churches that isn't recorded in the Scripture. You, know, you can read through the Old Testament and you find, well, why is, why is, why is there this emphasis on these few days and yet these decades are passed by? We know, too, in the life of Jesus that, that, um, that, that there's only a certain uh, accounts of him re- recorded uh, So much time, for instance, is spent simply on the last week of Jesus' life. In fact, John, when he writes his gospel, said that if everything was recorded that Jesus said and done, it would take libraries to fill it, and certainly it doesn't take libraries to fill Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so it's selective. So why is this here? That's the second question to ask. Third thing is, who were the first readers of this? And how would this strike them? And then fourthly, yes. We'd like to jump directly to us. But, but I think it's helpful to go through those, those other steps 
first. First, the context. We know we talked about this last Sunday, but just very quickly. We're in ancient Israel, obviously. Ahab is the king, Jezebel his wife. He's introduced, Ahab has, through his wife Jezebel, um, um, uh, idolatry, the worship of other gods. Nothing new in Israel except the extent to which Ahab introduced these other gods was, was even greater than before. You remember, in the history of Israel, God had made covenant with his people, and then this covenant with his people began with this, um, with this commandment, you'll have no other gods before me. Now, that commandment wasn't payback. In other words, God gave this commandment to these Israelites at Mount Sinai after he had delivered them from Egypt. And he wasn't saying to them, since I delivered you from Egypt, now you have to serve me. He was saying, I delivered you from Egypt because I'm your God and I am God. I'm the deliverer. I'm the giver of life. Thus, serve me, worship me, and worship me only because I'm the only giver of life. You can't find life anywhere else. So, worship me. Have no other gods. This is a gift to you to know this. This is a gift to you to have been delivered. This is a gift to you. This isn't payback. This is a gift to you, all that I've done. I've just done that so you can see who I really am now. Doesn't it make sense? Isn't it reasonable to worship me and me alone? Why would you look to anyone else? Why would you ascribe that which belongs only to me to any other? I'm God. So worship me and worship me alone. Idolatry is when we ascribe to someone something else that which belongs only to God. So we ascribe that to our possessions and we say, oh, our possessions define us. They direct us because that's where we find our delight, our joy. And God says, no. Your possessions will fail you. They can't give you life. We think, well, my passions then, my passions will define me. Tell me who I am. They'll direct my life. That, this is the, 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 the course that I should take. That which is, which is coming from me, my own passions, my own loves and hates and all of that. That's where I'll find my joy and my happiness. That's where I, and God says, no, 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 no. They'll lead you astray. Don't trust them. I said, well, then perhaps my power, you see, what I can control, that, that's what should direct me to gain more control over life. That'll, that'll be it. If I have more control, then, of course, I'll be happy. And God says, no, 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 no. You, you can't be that strong. He said, well, then my prestige, how I'm thought of and looked at uh, through the eyes and by the eyes of others, how, how, they, how they perceive me and think of me and honor me, the more honor I have. Ah, that's it. That's where I'll find my great delight. And God says, no, 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 no. That isn't it either. Let me define you. I'm God. Let me direct you. I, I, I'm, I'm God. Find your delight in me. I'll never let you down. He says, I'm the Lord, the ruler, and I'm the Savior. I'm the giver of life. Don't go to anyone else. But, but we do. And so in the course of ancient Israel, Ahab, through Jezebel and others, brought these gods, most especially this god Baal, who was said to be the god of the earth, the said to be the god who would, who would provide and, and, and give all that was necessary for life. And, and they began to worship him. And, and, and it got to the point where the prophet Elijah was moved 
knowing the covenant of God, knowing that the blessings of God would come to those who were obedient and the curses for those who were disobedient, and know that those blessings and curses were both spiritual and also on the nation. And he knew that one of the curses of the covenant, the primary curse of the covenant for disobedience of the nation, was that it wouldn't rain. And he knew that if it didn't rain, there'd be famine, and if there was famine, there would be death. So he comes to Ahab the prophet, and he says, it's not going to rain. Of Ahab knew his covenant. He would know what that meant. God has turned away from you because of your sin, because of your idolatry. So that's the context. That's where we find ourselves. So everything then spins from there. Now, the purpose for which these particular passages are in the scripture, I think, can be found in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21. This will come next week, at least in our consideration of it. But, but this is... This is um, uh, the classic uh, uh, occurrence of Elijah against the prophets of Baal. So in chapter 18, verse 21, we read this. Elijah comes to the people after setting up this duel, or in the process of setting up this duel be- between Baal and God. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? The Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You see, that's really the question always, isn't it? Who's God? And we keep waffling, don't we? And he says, why do you keep waffling between these two opinions? And so all of this is here to prove to us, to show to us that God is God. So that we'll follow him. In the sense in which God condescends and says, I want to show you who I am. I want to make it clear. Now, I showed you as I delivered you out of Egypt. That, that should have been clear in all that I did then. And when I said that, that, that you should have no other gods before me, you would have said, well, why would we? So now I want to show you who I am again. So that when I say don't have any other gods before me, you would say, well, of course. Why would we? Because you're God. So that's what this is all about. So when we read this, what we're trying to read, understand is, is, is this passage in light of God showing us who he is. That's the main point. It isn't first and foremost about us. It's first and foremost about us. who is God. That's what we're trying to find out here. Who is he really? And then finally, the readers of, this, of, of these passages, it's a little hard to know, but it's likely that the first readers, especially the whole corpus of First and Second Kings, the readers, first readers, would have been those Israelites, those people who were in exile in Babylon. Because you see, if you read all the way through 2 Kings, what you find is that it ends with the, the, the people in Judah, in Jerusalem and Judah, being exiled to Babylon because of their sin. And, and so the first readers of this would be those exiles. And they'd be reading this, and they'd be asking a couple of questions. Number one is, how do we get here? And number two, do we have any hope of getting home? And of course, there were promises through the prophet Jeremiah that yes, they would get home, that there would be restoration, but, but how would they know that? Could they really trust that that is true? So they're reading through this, thinking, oh, I know how we got here because of sin and idolatry. Is there any hope for us to be able to get home And the answer is yes, if God is God, if you can really trust him, if he's really powerful. So let's think about this passage in that context and then see what it means for 
for us. And we know what happens. Is it was, it's an easy uh, bit of history to understand what, what really took place. I mean, uh, uh, Elijah went to, to, uh, to the king and said, it's not going to rain. And then the word of the Lord came to him, and he says, get out of town. He said, go to Kareth and, and wait there. I'm going to feed you with these ravens, and uh, you'll get the water from, from the brook. And then after that, when the brook dried up, God said, I want you to go to Zarephath, and this widow then will take We'll take care of you. Now, the question is, why is it that Elijah had to leave that place? Why did he have to go and hide? And you would say, well, because he would just committed treason and his life was in danger. And you say, well, sure, but if he can keep it from raining, can't he, isn't he stronger than Ahab anyway? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was watching, watching the old Superman uh, television shows in black and white. But anyway, uh, I don't know if you, you probably didn't see them in black and white, most of you, but, 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 but anyway, when, when I was like the bad guys, they, were sh- they would shoot at Superman, you know, and the bullets would bounce off his chest, and then they'd realize they're out of bullets, and so they'd throw the gun at him, and he'd duck. <laughs> and I always wondered why, <laughs> you know. Um, I suppose there are means to ends, and that's one of the means by protection. And this would be one of the means for, for Elijah to run off. But I don't think that's the primary reason to run off, because if he could say it's not going to rain, I suppose he had some other power that God could grant to keep him safe in the midst of, 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 of Ahab. So he, but he did run off. And it could be to while the famine, while the drought came and the famine took place, he was away. It could be to, to gather himself, perhaps. It could be, however, to prepare him for what's next. Because you see, God was in the midst of showing Elijah who he was as well. So that these next steps could be, could be taken. It doesn't really say. We don't know why he was told to go, but, but he was indeed, indeed told to go. What's fascinating about these two incidents of Elijah being fed was first the instruments by which he was fed. First were the ravens. Now, if you're a reader of the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament law in Leviticus, you'll find that there were a lot of, of animals that were clean and other animals that were unclean. And they were to not eat of the animals that were unclean, but only eat the clean animals and so forth and so on. There are all kinds of laws about that. The ravens were unclean, and yet they fed Elijah. Now, it could be that God chose ravens because then Elijah wouldn't be tempted to eat them because they were unclean. And I'm sure there was an ancient proverb, you know, thou shalt not eat the beak that feeds you. But, but nonetheless, you see, these ravens brought him food. Think about that. These unclean animals brought him food. Unclean birds. And then, and then the widow. You know, it, it sounds odd to us when God says to, to Elijah, the ravens will feed you. But you have to understand, it's, it, it, it sounded just as odd, if not more odd, for God to say a widow would feed you. Because you see, in the days in which Elijah lived, the widows were the poorest of the poor. They had nothing. When their husband died, 
That was it for them. It wasn't like they could go to the junior college and, and retool and retrain or something and, and go out and get another job or something like that and be able to earn a living. They were, they were just lost. If, if the husband of the, or the brothers of the husband uh, that had died didn't take them up and the families, there was no family to, to, to see them through it and, and they were the poorest of the poor. And so for, for God to use a raven that was unclean was odd. For God to use a widow was very unlikely. And yet God was saying, listen, I, I, I command everything and I, I supply in any way that I, I desire. Baal isn't God of this. I'm God of this. I'm the giver of life. I can get the birds to feed you. I can get a widow to feed you. I am God. Trust in me and trust in me alone. I can really do this. You can only imagine those exiles in Babylon thinking, hmm, what we've heard the ancient prophet Isaiah, is that one named Cyrus will be raised up out of Persia to bring us out of this exile. A pagan, an unclean king. Can that really be true? And you know, it was. What happened was that when the Babylonians came in and captured Jerusalem, they exiled the people because their theory of, of how to destroy a nation was to, was to take a people and, 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 and integrate that people with a different culture so their culture would die. And so, so that was the plan, to take the Israelites and uh, these, these people from Judah and Jerusalem and, and to take them and put them in another place and, and, and dilute their culture so that they would lose it. The Persians, on the other hand, had a different theory. They were rather superstitious, Cyrus and his people, and so they thought, listen, if we capture a people and they have a god, let's not mess that up. Let's not make their god angry. So let's ask them to continue to cultivate their relationship with their god and have them uh, pray for us, because that'll help us. And so he said, oh, we've got these, these people from Jerusalem. Let's send them back, and they'll rebuild their their place and that'll be good for us and so you see this unclean pagan just like these unclean ravens this unlikely source they said oh we can trust god he's sovereign over the ravens he's sovereign over a widow he can be sovereign over this pagan king as well but what was fascinating too is that elijah left this place at careth when the brook dried up i don't know what he would have been thinking at that time he would have probably been watching the brook kind of dry up brooks do that Thinking, you know, God, what's the deal? You can make ravens bring me food. Why can't you bring me water? I, I mean, you brought manna to the people in the wilderness and got them water out of a rock. Well, why am I dependent upon this brook? Like, isn't there another way? God says, well, I've got something else for you. So the brook dries up, and he's sent to Zarephath. Now, Zarephath was out of Israel and right in the middle of Baal worship. So he was no longer in Israel when he was in Zarephath. He was in a foreign place. And God is about to say, listen, I'm God everywhere, even in, even in Zarephath. So I want you to go there, and, and, and you'll be taken care of there as well, because I've commanded a widow to feed you. Now, we don't have any indication that she knew that she was the widow commanded to feed him or not. But when uh, Elijah gets there, here is this, here is this widow there, and she's commanded to feed him. Now, it's 
almost difficult to read, isn't it, or to listen to. Because here's this starving widow, and she says, listen, I, I just have enough for my son and for me. I'm going to make our final meal, then we're going to die. And Elijah says, I know that, but bring me some food first. And you say, Elijah, that's not nice, right? But he said, I have a promise for you. And it's a promise from the God of Israel. If you do this, you'll never go hungry, at least until it rains, you know. We'll make sure that you have all that you need, that, that, that your oil won't um, uh, be empty, that, that your flour jar won't be empty, that throughout this whole course of time, you'll eat, we'll all eat, because here we are. Now, now Jesus, interestingly, made mention of this. In Luke in chapter 4, in fact, right after uh, the passage I read before our confession, you remember that passage where Jesus is in the synagogue and, and, and he reads this, 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 this piece from the, 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 the prophet Isaiah, concerning the coming of the Messiah, and he applies it to himself. He says, basically, in a sense, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus said, this is fulfilled in me. I'm the guy. This is, this is the one through whom this is coming. And they began to, 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 to talk about that. It goes on, Luke does, and says, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So, so basically, Jesus is anticipating uh, what's happening here. And he's saying, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I should do the miracles here in my hometown in Nazareth that I did in Capernaum. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town. But in truth, I tell you, there were many, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. And they heard these things, <clears throat> and when they heard these things, all the synagogue was filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the uh, brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through them in their midst, he went away. So Jesus said, listen, here's the situation. You won't accept me. Just like the people in Israel wouldn't have accepted the word of Elijah. And you won't accept me because you don't get it that you're poor and that you're captive and that you're oppressed. See, that's for whom I've come. And you think that can't be you, but it is. You see, this woman, when Elijah showed up, knew that was her. She knew she was poor. She had absolutely nothing. She had just enough to make a little lunch, and then they would starve to death after that. She knew she had nothing. So Elijah comes, you see, and he comes with this promise of God. So that's what gave him the audacity to say to this woman, feed me first. 
because he knew that would be to her blessing if she fed him first. She knew that God had worked in her heart already, commanded her to obey. So all that was set so he could make this claim. In a sense, what he was saying to this woman, you need to turn away from any trust that you have in Baal and trust the God of Israel. This is his word. That's all she had was this promise from the God of Israel. And she compared that to what she had. <laughs> and she said, I'll trust. Because she knew she had nothing. See, there's a sense in which Elijah was saying to her, give me what you have, and the God of Israel will give you all you need. Think about that. The sense in which Elijah was saying, give me all you have. The God of Israel will give you all you, all you need. Reminded the words of Jesus when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God and don't worry, he said. So when we see first the kingdom of God, what we're saying is that God is the ruler. You see, he's the ruler. He's the Lord. It's his kingdom. He's king of the kingdom. It's his rule. He defines, he directs. You see, he's the one that I look to for my life. And we seek first his righteousness. We're seeking first all that which is right, which is true of him because he's the giver of life. He's the one who's the Lord. He's the one who's the Savior. And he says, seek that first. And when he says first, he doesn't mean, well, there's a second, third, and fourth. He means seek that. And then everything else, you see, is known in relationship to that, to the kingdom of God and the very righteousness of God. And he says, seek that. And then, you see, you belong to God. And if God is for you, who can be against you kind of thing? And so, so trust me, he said. You, you know what? Preliminary to all that, that's why we read it this morning in our responsive reading. Preliminary to all this is, is he begins by saying you can't serve two masters. See, they were double-minded in the days of Elijah. They brought in this other God with the God of Israel. So you can't serve two masters. Doing that will create a worrisome life, an anxious life. So, so, so trust God. Let me give you some evidence. Watch the birds, watch the flowers. Let me give you some evidence. Seek first the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said as well. Whoever saves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. See, what this woman was being asked to do was to lose her life, to give up all that she clung to, everything she thought would be her sustenance at least until the next day. He said, no, 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 no. That can't keep you alive. Lose it. You see, for my sake, for the sake of the God of Israel, and you'll have life. She lost it <laughs> and found it. She gave it and gained it. 
And there she was, alive, you see. What a gift in a sense to her. And I don't mean to disparage her poverty, but what a gift to her from God to be able to see that she had nothing, you see. Our problem is that we don't see that. The problem of the ones who heard Jesus read that passage from Luke chapter 4 that's recorded there, the passage from Isaiah, uh, they didn't see themselves as the ones who were, as he had put it just previous to that, blessed are the poor in spirit, you see. Blessed are the ones who understand their spiritual poverty, who get that, understand their weakness, who, who get that, you see. And you see, just like this woman, we live on promises, we live on the very promise of God in Jesus. Oh, we have it more clearly, and that's great for us because Christ has come. He's lived. He's died. He's been resurrected. We have all of that. We have the history. We have the evidence. We have, we have the scriptures that speak to that. We have all of that. But, but really, it all comes down to do we really believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be? Do we really believe that Jesus did what he claimed to have done? Do we really believe that the one that was crucified in the middle as he was dying, was taking the sins of sinners upon himself and that there's life by believing in him. You remember that right after Jesus fed thousands of people with just a bit of bread and fish, his commentary on that activity was this, John chapter 6, verse 35. He said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's the promise, isn't it? That we rest upon. We come to him. He'll never cast us out. He says, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's what we're trusting, isn't it? That he won't cast us out, and he'll raise us up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, uh, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's the promise. We must believe. See, We're just like this woman. <laughs> We're believing a promise. 
We're trusting in it. Well, there's evidence for it, but we trust in this, in this promise. But then this was tested, wasn't it? Her son died. We're reading along. That should shock us as much as it shocked Elijah. What's up with this? God, you sustained her miraculously by, by, this, by this jar of, 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 of oil, this, this jug of oil, this jar of flour. You, you, you sustained her miraculously, and now but you get a hint, don't you, that, that she's sort of aware of, of all this God thing because she said, this is because of my sin, isn't it? She said, you've, you've come, oh man of God, and, and this is because of my sin. You get a sense that she was saying, wait a minute, I thought that all that was taken care of, that, that, that now, because of this work, that I belong to God, and, and now he takes my son. You know, Elijah, in the midst of that, is moved. He's a prophet. Don't try this at home. Right? He's a prophet of God. He knows there's something to be shown here. And so he lays on this boy three times, cries out to God. His life is restored, brought back to him. And he brings him down to the woman. And here's the point of it, isn't it? She says, oh, yes, of course. You're a man of God. That which comes out of you is truth, you see. Don't you ever wonder, why aren't all the dead raised? I mean, haven't you had those you love, especially in what we might call untimely deaths. And we think, oh, can't I just lay on this one like Elijah did? And won't he come back to life? And then we ask the question, why didn't Jesus, when he was walking around the earth, why didn't he raise everyone? Why only a few? There were people that died all the time in the days of Jesus. And we only have record of three, really, that he raised most dramatically, it seems to us, Lazarus, but there were a couple others. You remember Jerry's daughter and the little widow's son. But why didn't he raise everyone? Even on the day that he raised Lazarus, weren't there other tombs around? Why, why couldn't he have brought forth them all? Well, I don't know. <laughs> other than this, clearly, it's not time. A day will come. So why these? Well, to show he can do it. To give us a glimpse of glory so that God can say, I'm God. Baal isn't God. Don't trust him. Your possessions aren't God. Don't trust them. Your power isn't God. Don't trust it. The honor that people give you isn't God. Don't trust it. Your passions aren't God. Don't trust them. I'm God. Trust me. I really am. I'm God in Israel. I'm God in Zarephath. I'm God everywhere. Trust me. You see, when Elijah came on the scene, as we mentioned last Sunday during this whole time of Lent, when Elijah came on the scene, we recognized that he came to deal with sin and its consequences. And he did. He came and, and announced the curse. He came and showed that God is the Lord Thus, even in these passages that we read this morning, these incidents, he showed that God was ruler over life and death, and that God was the Savior, indeed, the very giver of life. So he showed all of that. 
all of this to prepare the way, to prepare us for the coming of, of Jesus. You remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often, the apostle adds, as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're to remember him, and we're to proclaim him in the midst of this. We're remembering him, what he did. We're proclaiming him because of what he did. And we know that he's present with us here. And he says really the same things to us that Elijah said to the woman. Give me all you have and I'll give you everything you need. What do we give him? Well, everything we have, which is what? <laughs> Our sin. It's all we have. We give him our sin. We give him our unrighteousness. We give him our weakness. We give him our brokenness. And he says, here's what you need. You need forgiveness. You need strength. Right? So he says, seek first the kingdom, my rule and reign. My righteousness, my very life. And I'll give you all these things. He says, come to me. All you who are weak and burdened, poor, captives, oppressed. Come to me. All you who are weak and burdened. And I'll give you rest. You see, rest from all of that. Because what's the burden of life? What's the anxiety of life? What's the weight of life? It's our sin, isn't it? It's, it's that that makes us anxious. We know deep down inside I'm guilty. Something's got to be dealt with because I can't cover it up all the time and I can't keep making up for it because that doesn't work. And so, so the anxiety from that just wearies us. And then the burden of idolatry, the idolatry that says it all depends upon me. I'm responsible for all of this. I must carry it out. It's on me. He says, no, 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 bring that me, dump it here, and I'll give you rest. You're trying to save your life. Lose it for my sake. Lay it here, you see. He says, no, trust me. Trust me in this. You say, well, how can I do that? And he said, well... I died and rose. Trust me. Trust me. It was interesting. When Jesus spoke to his disciples of being the bread of life, I went through that whole discourse. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Trust me. Believe in me. Right? And I'll raise you up on the last day. Some who were following him at that point, left him. And Jesus turned to his disciples. And he said to them, are you going to leave too? And Peter looked at Jesus and said, where can we go? 
You have the words of life, you say. It's exactly what the woman would have said to Elijah. What else can I do? You have the words of life. You have the promise of life from the God of Israel. Jesus said, the disciples said to Jesus, you have the promise of life. You see, that's the promise we, we cling to. And so you see, as we come on this day, during this season of Lent, when we think of repentance, we think of Jesus dealing with sin, we think of ourselves turning from it and trusting him, seeking first his kingdom, seeking his righteousness, losing our life to find it, all of that. And we think of coming to him, dumping it all, and receiving life because we trust that promise. We trust that Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me and for us that even as we come to this table, as we're casting off every sin, every weight, knowing that you'll take it You'll take our sin, and you'll cast it as far as the east is from the west, and you'll give us forgiveness, and you'll declare us righteous in your sight, and you'll give us your spirit to work in us. The day will come when the promise of being raised will come to complete fruition, and we'll live forever in your presence glorifying you with our very lives, the life that you give to us. Father, I pray that you'll take this bread and this juice and you'll set it aside in such a way that we'll know what Christ has done. And we'll know that we're in his presence. And we'll know that he is the giver of life. So Father, we ask that you forgive us our sins and that you grant to us forgiveness and strength that we may walk in a way that's pleasing to you, glorifying you so that people can see us and say, they have a great God. And this God we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I